Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Schriever Space Power Series. I'm Kevin Chilton, Explorer Chair for the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence. Today, U.S. Space Command now operates in a domain where threats are on the rise. Adversaries like China are increasingly seeking to contest this domain. Their capabilities include everything from ground-based direct ascent missiles to electronic warfare, jamming, and co-orbital rendezvous satellites. The impact on U.S. national security interests is significant. And nor is China alone, with Russia posing a distinct threat to U.S. space operations. They've used their space capabilities to support precision ground strikes on Ukrainian territory and jammers to disrupt GPS satellites and have conducted cyber attacks on space-based communication systems. They too have direct ascent ASAT capability and ground-based lasers that can threaten our satellites as well. Given these challenges, the decisions made at U.S. Space Command are especially important. So with that context, I'm honored to introduce Lieutenant General John Shaw, the Deputy Commander of United States Space Command. He and his team are charged with not only supporting global, multi-domain operations with space capabilities, but also securing the United States' ability to operate in, through, and from the space domain. So with that, it's my pleasure to welcome you, General Shaw, and uh, it's really a personal pleasure to, to be with you today and share this time together with our audience. And before we get started into my questions, I want to give you the opportunity to open up the dialogue with some opening remarks. Well, thanks, sir. Good to spend some time with you again, too. Great to be here. And yeah, I, I think you teed up really nicely some very interesting times that we're seeing right now. And as U.S. Space Command is approaching, approaching its fourth birthday, we'll celebrate that next month. And Space Force will celebrate being turning four a little later mm -hmm. uh, this year. I think it's helpful to kind of talk about, uh, I, like to, uh, I like to talk about a framework that helps us think about how we get to where we are today. And, and, and the framework uh, I, is that, that I believe we're, right now we're in the third space age. The first space age is kind of the, the Cold War. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and it was dominated by national security activities, a little bit of scientific exploration. Even the Apollo missions, I think we would have to say, were national security kind of focused activities. I think they were combined, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, and, uh, we, uh, uh, and there was very little commercial, very nascent at that time. Maybe towards the end of that space age, we all wanted our MTV, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was very little. Um, and then but the end of the Cold War, things changed. It was an inflection point. You know, what had been our adversaries in the space domain, we ended up partnering with to do the International Space Station. And we started with Mir, of course, mm -hmm. as you know well. Um, and, uh, and so we partnered with them from a civil perspective. Uh, from a national security perspective, we kind of shifted. You know, uh, the Gulf War happened right at that inflection point, And that was also where I began and spent most of my career delivering space capabilities to the tactical level as much as we could, right? Mm -hmm. uh, GPS, uh, ISR, um, <clears throat> missile warning. And that's been a, was a major focus of the second space age, getting it down to the tactical users. And commercial kind of had a little bit of an inflection point there. Started to do a little bit more. It's mostly a linear change, you know, uh, geos still mostly geosynchronous, a little dabbling in low Earth orbit. Um, and uh, but the the government capabilities were still sort of the premier capabilities mm -hmm. that we that we knew and used. Somewhere around, I think it's around 2015. You know, it's not a really good bright line. There was another inflection point that began the third space age. You know, it was in 2015 that. SpaceX first landed its reusable booster for the first time. Kind of changed really the way we look at 
that space looked a little bit, mm -hmm. and it's continuing to change in many ways today. It's also when they filed their uh, a license for their license for Starlink, the mm -hmm. first uh, operational large-scale proliferated low-Earth uh, orbit uh, constellation, which is in, in use today. Um, from a, a, a civil space perspective, you know, uh, NASA really, I mean, they had few different fits and starts in the 90s and early 2000s, but kind of committed to Artemis and going back to the moon and got the money and a program and mm -hmm. and really kind of, and, and then we're going back and we're going to do it. We're going to stay right. and we're going to do it uh, in an international partnership fashion in a way we did not do in the first space age. Mm -hmm. And then uh, from a national security perspective, it was in 2015 that we first started talking publicly. You can trace and do the Google search and you'll find of space as a warfighting domain that we saw that there were now threats in the domain that we had to consider operating uh, within that environment. And again, for, so for the past, uh, and, and the, that was the genesis that really led to why we now have a space force and a space command today, is the realization there's a threat as all of these other activities are surging and becoming uh, more common. We need to consider the threat as well. Another interesting dynamic in this third space age, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a, ref uh, a, a good amount over the next hour here, is all of those sectors, you know, civil, scientific, commercial, and national security are now interdependent in ways they certainly weren't in the first space age and mostly not in the second space age. And I'll just give a couple examples. Mm -hmm. we, uh, um, we leverage from a national security perspective commercial activity uh, and capabilities across the spectrum, SATCOM, space domain awareness, uh, imaging, in ways that we never really did uh, earlier uh, to a greater degree. So we need them. There's a, there's a dependence that we have on them now um, that is part of our broader force set that we bring. But the reverse is also true. Commercial has to consider security now mm -hmm. in ways they did not have to before. You know, Russia actually came out publicly last year saying, you know, if, if space capabilities are being used to support military operations, then they could be a target. They said it publicly. It was always kind of implied, um, mm -hmm. even earlier. Yeah. And, uh, and, and their, their interfaces between civil and commercial didn't exist before. Could you have imagined when you were flying the shuttle and when someone said, you know, in the future, we're just going to hire somebody to drop people off at the International Space Station. No. And you would have said, no, nah, that'll, <laughs> that'll never happen. Well, it's kind of a space Uber, right? I mean, that's yeah. basically what we have now. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's amazing, and it's working. Mm -hmm. uh, and then between civil and, and national security, our partnership is greater than it's ever been. You know, we've always been there to support NASA and its activities from the very beginning. Um, we were there during the second space age, letting them know when there might be collisions, uh, potential collisions with the International Space Station or with the space shuttle. Um, but now as they're going to, uh, back to the moon and, and the, the, man, the, 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 the human presence is going to um, uh, get larger and further away from the grab, into, up the gravity well, uh, we're going to be there alongside to help them. So it's in that framework that I say that we now have, why would we be surprised? We you know, made a decision as a nation to have a space force and a space command four years ago. I think Looking back, um, you know, we didn't, you know, there were there was a lot of naysayers at the time. Was this a good idea? It's not good. It's going to be a waste of resources. Why are we doing this? It looks, looking back, more and more all the time as a brilliant move, because all of the challenges that we saw have continued to advance. You described a lot of them in mm -hmm. your opening comments, and it's actually a good thing we did it when we did. If we were trying to stand up a space command, space force now, four years later, we'd be much further behind in addressing the threats, making the environment more secure for all the participants that are going to be there and, and, and uh, strengthening all those partnerships across all of the sectors. 
So uh, I do want to talk a little bit about doctrine today because I think it's a great thing to do here at the Mitchell Institute. Absolutely. Um, and so we continue, as we advance and we grow Space Force and Space Command, you know, we're starting to develop new kinds of doctrine. One of the uh, emerging kind of areas that still is ripe for, for continued thought is, you know, this, uh, we used to have a, a U.S. Space Command, 1985 to 2002. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it's, it was what we call the classic in joint doctrine terms, the classic uh, functional combatant command. Right. And that definition is, is a very simple definition. It's, just a, it's a combat command that provides trans-regional support to the geographic combatant commands. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit more underneath that, but that's basically what it says. And that's what the, the original U.S. Space Command mm -hmm. did. Um, and then in our days together at Strategic Command, it kind of continued that tradition. It was about functional, um, functional support. When we stood up the new U.S. Space Command, um, uh, we were given, for the first time, an area responsibility. Right. And that kind of really starts to stretch the doctrinal definition of a functional combat command, because now we look like a geographic combat command. We have an AOR we're supposed to defend. And hopefully all of you are tracking that AOR is, uh, is, um, uh, is described as uh, starting 100 kilometers above mean sea level and extending outward um, indefinitely. It's a pretty big AOR. It's a big AOR. Big AOR. If you do the math, it's a big <laughs> AOR. Um, but uh, so now we not only, but we still have our func our classic functional combatant command mm -hmm. responsibilities. In fact, we have them more now than we've ever had them before. We provide trans-regional support to all the geographics, and they're more dependent on space capabilities today than they were yesterday, and they'll be more dependent tomorrow than today. So how do you reconcile functional versus geographic, or as I like to say, astrographic, right? Because it's not lines written on the earth in mm -hmm. in a Greek derivation of that word. It's 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 written on the stars. So how do you reconcile that? I, I think we have to come up with a new kind of doctrinal way to look at it. We can't abandon the functional combat command responsibilities to support the mm -hmm. geographics, but we also have an AOR we have to protect and defend. So we're kind of breaking the mold. And when you start to really pull that apart, you realize that the Department of Defense is kind of hinged on functional or, or geographics. And, and we realize, well, we're kind of both. So how do we do that job? So that's just one of these uh, emerging ideas, and it's a pretty exciting time. So I think I'll go ahead and, and, and stop there in my opening comments, but the, the, the takeaway is it's, this has been a, a really interesting job for me to be a, uh, the senior uh, Space Force member in U.S. Space Command mm -hmm. and to watch both of those organizations grow over the last four years. Well, a lot of terrain has been plowed. Yeah, a lot of ground's been plowed over the last four years. And as you said, if we hadn't started four years ago, we'd be further behind. It's, it's interesting to me, though, that how long we waited to accept space as an AOR, area of responsibility. I think General Hal Estes was the first one to propose it when he was in command of U.S. Space Command at Air Force Space Command in 96, 7, and 8, that time period. And, uh, of course, it, it didn't resonate with anybody at the time, but leaders from a long time back in the space business have been predicting that this was going to happen one day. And then in 2007, we have the Chinese do an ASAT test, but it takes us eight years to, to finally come to admit that Yes, it is indeed a, a war fighting domain, but you know that's that's a great rundown on history, and I like the way you break into three different phases, and uh, and and so giddy up, you're, yeah. you're in an important time period here. Uh, whenever, so now we have to think about you have to think about in your command, uh, offensive and defensive operations. You got to protect what we have up here up there that the terrestrial forces are so dependent on, and even U.S. Space Command is dependent on. But you also have to be able to hold at risk adversary capability that they would utilize against our 
air, land, and sea forces, and against your forces as well. All of this begs for a concept of operations uh, for space, quote unquote, warfighting or operations. Can you can give us a, uh, some of the thoughts on work that your command has done with regard to concepts of operations? Yeah, sure. So one, I think one again. Uh, uh, focus that we're, we're learning that we need to have uh, both both from the service and the combat commands perspective is that we actually have a continuum of responsibilities you know it isn't um, and, and again this is another doctrinal kind of emerging kind of doctrinal thought that we need to pursue if we just uh, and it's I think it varies a little bit from air power doctrine we have a continuous need to provide uh, transparency and security in the domain to make it to make it safe for operation. Mm -hmm. and, and I actually use the metaphor often that in many of our day-to-day -day activities that we do, and I think we'll do in the future, we resemble the US Coast Guard as much as any other um, kind of service. Mm. We're providing awareness of hazards in the domain. We're trying to make it safe and secure. We're taking a look at where there may be hazards. I'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, and, 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 and making the, the domain safe to operate in and to um, increase confidence that it can be operated in safely. So that's an important, I think, component that we need to think about the space domain that may not necessarily occur to us. And so uh, it's from that perspective that, uh, but as you, as you well state, there may be times that we're called upon in order to hold enemy space capabilities at risk because mm -hmm. they increasingly are using those to support their terrestrial operations and to close their kill chains. Mm -hmm. And so we have to look at that part of a broader continuum as well. How do we do that all uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in, a, in an operational manner that is responsible, but at the same time responsive? Um, and uh, so um, that's, uh, again, ripe, ripe uh, yeah. uh, for good doctrinal thought. We've done a lot of work along these lines. We've had our um, uh, we've done a lot of good planning. Our J-5 stood up from when I first got there uh, from about 25 people to, to um, more than five times that and has been doing uh, joint planning along these lines with the other combatant commands. Terrific. And of course that begs for command and control of these assets, which would be your command's responsibility to make sure you can get the orders out and they'll be executed in a timely enough fashion and time matters in your domain and I'd say in a more precise fashion than probably any other domain about how responsive you have to be. You've talked about dynamic space operations, kind of leads us into this. Can you can you explain to our audience what you what you mean by that and the need for that? Yeah. So this is probably the this could be the most fundamental doctrinal uh, shift that we're probably going to see in the next four to five years. And I'll I'll just uh, the 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 way to approach it is to realize the way we've been doing space operations uh, since the dawn of the space age, we're doing it wrong. What we've really been doing and, and, uh, is we've been doing what I call positional space operations. Uh, we launch a platform into orbit and we tend to leave it right in that orbit. And the only energy state changes from that orbit tend to usually be station keeping maneuvers, mm -hmm. maybe some slight repositionings depending on what you're doing. Um, you know, even, even the space shuttle that you flew uh, three times there, sir, um, mostly positional space operators. You had some good maneuver capability on that, do your, your rendezvous and such, but you weren't changing your inclination much, yep. and you weren't changing your, your altitude a whole lot. It was mm -hmm. mostly some fine-tuning. Mm -hmm. um, and that's great, positional space operations, right? We, we, naturally, that's how we would start operating in space, to just leverage Kepler the best we possibly can, leverage these special orbits of mm -hmm. geosynchronous and sun-synchronous and such. But we, 
we have to realize, and we're coming to the realization that, that we can't use that as a, that, that's not going to be sufficient anymore. Necessary, but not sufficient. Mm -hmm. Commercial systems, they might be able to stay positional. They're, they're providing communications, they're um, uh, architectures that can, that can leverage you know, Kepler and, 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 and uh, be effective in that manner. Many of our national security systems are probably going to remain positional. Um, missile warning and SATCOM to some extent. But there's an emerging set of platforms that we think um, have to overcome this positional approach. And they need to probably spend most of their lifetime changing their energy state and maneuvering as opposed to staying in orbit, or at least a much, much larger percentage mm -hmm. than we do today. And the reason that we don't, though, is um, we, uh, are, we have satellites that have projected lifetimes measured in years and fixed fuel tanks. Right. So we just can't do that. And that is constraining our ability to do a lot of things we want to do at U.S. Space Command. So that was good. Exactly where I was going to go, one of the big limb facts and why, for example, the shuttle could maneuver, but we, we husbanded that fuel right. carefully right. because it was a limiting factor on how much we could maneuver and when we, we had to save fuel to come home. Um, so what do you envision happening in the future? Bigger fuel tanks on satellites? Well, uh, refueling, air refueling, sorry, space-based refueling. We're already seeing that in the commercial industry where we're extending the lives of geosynchronous satellites with um, satellites, other satellites that rendezvous with them that have fuel on board to position them. What, what, what do you think? Uh, is, is there a place for nuclear as well? So let me, first, I feel like I should give some good, so we aren't just uh, coming up with this on our own. We're seeing this experientially. Mm -hmm. And one I can talk about here in this forum is uh, our uh, uh, geosynchronous space situation awareness program. GSAP is what it's called. So we yes. have some satellites in geosynchronous orbit. Mm -hmm. And their sole purpose, they don't do an Earth-facing mission. Their sole purpose is to move around the geosynchronous belt and to look at other platforms. Mm -hmm. We'll look at our own platforms if something might be malfunctioning right. and say, hey, what did something go wrong with a solar uh, panel deployment? You know, that can inform how we can do things better in the future and why we need to remedy a situation. Mm -hmm. Others might have us look at, come look at their satellites. And if there's something that's behaving suspiciously, we'll look at that too. Mm -hmm. There's that kind of Coast Guard look, right? We're gonna go look at it. Yeah. Make sure it's, it, that we, we better understand what it is. But, you know, this, so now let me just, you know, put on my space command hat, right? You know, the Space Force has given Space Command GSAP satellites, and they basically say, hey, these things need to last X number of years, and uh, so you're gonna have to make it last. And so we are actually largely constrained by what we can do with those platforms. The planners, uh, the mission planners for these uh, platforms uh, that are out at Trever Space Force Base, I had a chance to sit down with them uh, a few weeks ago and spend a good amount of time understanding how they approach it. Uh, they are just like you described the shuttle. They mm -hmm. have to think in terms of months and years of where they're going to maneuver the GSAP satellites given these constraints. <laughs> we can't have those constraints in the future. And so I just, so what we're trying to uh, articulate is a requirement to Space Force for we need to be able to have sustained space maneuver for those platforms that we deem are the kind that need to be dynamic mm -hmm. as opposed to positional. How are we going to do that? One of the luxuries of being a combat command is I don't have to come up with the solutions and I don't have to worry about budgets, right? I just be very demanding and say, I need this. I do think, but, but for the purposes of kind of laying this out for the, the audience here and, and trying to uh, look at what a potential solution set could be, I think there's two, two large solution sets that may work for us. The first you alluded to, and that's just be able to refuel. Mm -hmm. If I could refuel our MyGSAP satellites uh, once a month, we would be operating them completely differently than we do now. 
they'd be operating at, at maximum thrust levels and delta V levels that are unlike anything we're mm -hmm. doing right now. We're kind of doing, for those who really want an analogy, we're, we're kind of operating GSAP today the, is if you did aerial reconnaissance with a Zeppelin. And the analogy actually worked pretty well. I mean, we can do it, but you're not fooling anybody that you're coming. And you have to, you're such uh, operating at the whims of the domain, right? And you really got to figure out, how am I going to, do I adjust my inclination a little bit? Do I, how do I do this? And I got to do it very carefully because I got very little fuel. Mm -hmm. I don't want Zeppelins anymore. I want to, what, didn't you fly some uh, reconnaissance uh, yeah, uh, aircraft? Yeah, RF-4. RF-4. I need an RF-4. But you also need <laughs> F-15s. And <laughs> we can get to that. We, and we will. But the, the idea I'm trying to deliver here is what we're doing today, we shouldn't be happy with, and we're not happy with it. Mm -hmm. so, the two, so, the, so maybe refueling, or I like to say there may be another solution that's commoditization, right? I talked about the lifetime. I'll take a GSAP Space Force today. Uh, I'll need another one in two weeks because I'm going to fly the heck out of it. Mm -hmm. It's going to empty that, that gas tank in a hurry. Right. If you uh, look at that, uh, then you start to see what we're really after. And what I can say is that I just talked about GSAP, which is a you know a reconnaissance satellite on orbit, as we get more capabilities in the future that we see coming, F-15s in orbit, yeah. we can't fly an F-15 like we fly a Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. That's not going to cut it. So how are we going to achieve sustained space maneuver for our dynamic space operations platforms? How are we going to need to better decide if we're free of the positional space operations constraints? How will we now operate these capabilities in ways that allow me to now achieve surprise and initiative uh, against an adversary in ways that I can't today. Mm -hmm. And so very ripe doctrinal thinking, and I do think that we're gonna see this inflection point for certain capabilities are gonna need this capability. Yeah, or survive. Survive your, because of maneuverability. Right. Become, become right. unpredictable. Right. Or be able to maneuver out of the way yeah, of the I'll point, you know, we talk, out, we talk a lot about resilience, and we need resilience in our space systems, but why do we need resilience? Because they're positional. Um, no one ever built a fort and said I didn't need it to be resilient mm -hmm. because it was positional. You knew it would come under, under threat. Right. Um, that's why. So you start to look at this paradigm. But if I have dynamic space operations capability and ability to sustain maneuver, then resilience changes a lot. Now yeah. it's, I have the ability to, to um, maintain initiative, and maybe resilience isn't, what, isn't the same anymore. Excellent. Um, in the end of the day, we want to deter a fight in space or, op, you know, uh, a kinetic fight in space uh, with an adversary. Uh, and you mentioned castles, which is a defensive position. And, and I don't think in history there's ever been a successful deterrent strategy based solely on defense. There has to be an element of threat that's uh, positioned against an adversary. So. I, do you, you want to reflect on that, your views on that? I, I, think, I think you said it really well, and again, this feeds right into, I can't wait for the Mitchell Institute to generate some doctrinal thought along these lines of how can we change the deterrence equation by employing sustained space maneuver in ways that we can't today. Now, now let's, so this is how this discussion is going to go, right? You're going to, you're going to get the, the, the really smart folks thinking about this, and they'll say, well, there are some historical examples of where positional operations were deter did have some form of deterrent. The Maginot Line had some form of deterrent. The Germans <laughs> decided they weren't going to go through it. Yeah. They just went around. Mm -hmm. um, and we could, and that was from, but, but purely defensive, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, things might have been different if, if uh, maybe there was something in addition to the Maginot Line that the French had had, and things might have turned out a little bit differently in 1940, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So I think that's absolutely true and absolutely ripe for thought. Great. 
Let me go back to cislunar because you, you brought that up in your opening remarks. And uh, you know, NASA's going back to the moon. There'll be other countries going to the moon. But also we see um, Chinese satellites on the far side of the moon at Lagrange points, which you, know, you want to keep track of what they're doing up there. Um, maybe a little bit more on what you see from a requirements perspective as a combatant, part of a combatant command, for what you need to know in your command centers about cislunar space going forward, say in the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah. I, you know, we, we get asked, I get asked this question a lot, so I'm glad we talk about it. I usually have to start by saying, you know, just a little bit of a reality check, and, and, and I hope the audience will bear with me because I do think cislunar is important. But we're, we're not uh, looking at cislunar at the expense of those uh, capabilities closer and further down the gravity well mm -hmm. that our joint force relies on day in and day out. Mm -hmm. That is, it's, it has to be the, the, pr the primacy of our focus okay. is on those space capabilities that the joint force uses. And those today <clears throat> are predominantly in, in geosynchronous or below. However, we do have an AOR. And right now, we're not exactly concerned about security operations uh, in the Martian environment or the Jovian environment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you can't draw a line, a very sharp line, anywhere in the Earth-Moon system and say, here and no further. You have to look at it in totality. And classically, we did, right? Yeah. At the geosynchronous belt. Right. But that, was, uh, that is no longer sufficient. We mm -hmm. have to look. And, and you know, I, uh, I, I had read uh, a few weeks ago that I think there's no fewer than 100 missions planned to the lunar environment in the next 10 years, most of them on crude. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, uh, it's so, there, so how soon will before, before we start talking about lunar congestion, right, uh, as we start getting a lot of activity up there? Mm -hmm. And so if I go back to, it's our AOR, we're responsible for identifying uh, threats, hazards and such, being transparent, making it safer operation in, um, that naturally and logically extends into the lunar environment. And so we're absolutely interested, it will absolutely start with space domain awareness capabilities in the lunar environment. <clears throat> but beyond that, I think we'll be interested in, in, in communications architectures, as NASA will, as it puts the presence there, and, and other capabilities. So it'll naturally get there, especially as others go there, uh, including our partners uh, and adversaries. Yeah. Do you think there'll be a great opportunity or an opportunity to team with NASA? I mean, they have equity here. They want to protect their transports of astronauts and equipment to and from the surface of the moon. Would you think there's an opportunity for the Department of Defense and NASA to cooperate on this mission set? Well, uh, there, we are already cooperating okay. in, in, so, in so many ways. I mean, I, I should just point out that one of the uh, missions that uh, we're really proud of that we have at U.S. Space Command is uh, um, we're responsible for uh, DoD support to manned spaceflight, to human space. Right. And so, um, so the, uh, uh, when uh, the uh, Artemis missions happen, we'll be doing what we, and by the way, we've been doing this for the uh, SpaceX missions as well. We're on call in case the capsule mm -hmm. doesn't come down where it's supposed to, and we gotta, mm -hmm. gotta bring all the resources we can to bear to do a rescue. Mm -hmm. You know, we, so we've got our, um, that's prim primarily our, U.S. Air Force component to U.S. Space Command mm -hmm. with the rescue forces they can bring to bear. Right. So we're doing that today. Uh, and we're also talking with NASA all the time about many things that we can share and do together on space domain awareness using sensors that we that we use for national security purposes can also be used to understand what's going on in the lunar environment and mm -hmm. contribute to the safety of astronauts once they get there. So it's happening today. It will continue in the future. And it's always been that case from the first space age. Right. Hey, speaking of 
this environment and, and knowing what's going on up there and keeping track of things. There's been a recent change of responsibilities to the Department of Commerce um, for, I'll let you explain it to our audience. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I kind of yeah. think of an analogy of the FAA, but we still have military yeah. uh, radars and capabilities in case of well, a 9-11 event and how that is all seconded over or we have government res uh, military responsibilities to fill those roles as well as the FAA, international agreements, et cetera. So help us understand better what roles U.S. Space Command will have for domain awareness and how the Department of Commerce will, will work with you or, or separately, I'm not sure. Yeah, there, the, this is actually, it, it's actually a good move for our government to do this. And, and what you're referring to is the Department of Commerce taking on the responsibilities for space traffic management. Okay. So I, I will, I'll, I'll suggest to, to the audience here, uh, today, the Space Command, Space Force, the Department of Defense today are the, the gold standard for awareness of what's going on in the space domain. You know, we, if, hopefully many of you know about spacetrack.org. If you don't, you can go to that website and you can get your own uh, account and get con conjunction alert messages and other, and other uh, navigation safety messages in the space domain. And we're doing that. Mm -hmm. We're doing it because we started doing it in the first space age and we continue to do it in the second space age as a Department of Defense. A and it made sense, right? When the first space age was mostly national security focused and even the second space age, mostly government capabilities were the, were the, uh, the premier capabilities, you know, we were the ones kind of tracking and making sure it was safe to operate. But now, now that there's so much more commercial activity um, that's eclipsing really in um, volume, uh, national security activity, why is the DOD now still doing this? Why isn't it a, a, a civil organization? And so it's a logical move. And your analogy, I think, is actually a really good one. We don't rely on AWACS to do air traffic control um, in the US. In the US. Right. <laughs> we, we could. We could. We really had to. But they need to be working on other things. The AWACS uh, controllers need to be working on other things. We have an FAA to do that. And so what I envision in the future is we've been working closely with the Department of Commerce over the last couple of years as they try to um, set up their architecture to do space traffic management. We will continue to be partners for the foreseeable future. And I expect that they will focus most of their effort on safety of operations for uh, uh, all, all uh, operators in orbit uh, on a uh, normal deliberate timeline, assuming everyone's being cooperative. We will work on the margins to look for threats and we'll also work maybe outside the volume that they're focused on um, and, and help in that regard. So we'll always be partners. I would venture to say this is no different from the air and maritime domains. You know, the, the, uh, I live next door to uh, General Van Herc, the uh, NORTHCOM commander, mm -hmm. and he loves the FAA. He works closely with the FAA. But when certain scenarios uh, emerge uh, in the continent of the United States, then it's his job and not the FAA's right. to look at those. I think you can extrapolate a lot of that in the way that we'll do partnership in the space between Department of Commerce and uh, U.S. Space Command. And I think that's right for doctrinal thought. Right. What does that look like? How can we use the lessons that we've learned on homeland defense in the air domain um, since 9-11 and apply those to how we would partner with civil agencies in the space domain for safety, security, and transparency. Great. And are we ready to snap the chalk line on this, or is it still a work in progress? The trans—that's the development of who's going to do what responsibilities and actually 
Yeah, I, I don't know if there will actually ever be a snap of the chalk line, but there will be a transition. In okay. fact, we already have, uh, Department of Commerce has a plan where they want to kind of take take on this role Great. and how they're going to do it. But <clears throat> we're going to what's that uh, first rule of wing walking? You know, don't uh, don't let go of one thing until you have a really firm grip on another right. part of that wing, right? So yeah. we're gonna we're gonna walk them through this, and we're gonna make sure that we maintain that gold standard for the planet Great. that we've been um, honing over the last number of decades. Makes sense. Hey, you mentioned commercial space in uh, wartime applications. Um, from your perspective, what are the challenges and opportunities in this area of leveraging U.S. commercial space capabilities in a crisis? Yeah, we, so as I mentioned earlier, we, we actually, we, we're we're in a symbiotic relationship with commercial space today, in in the ways that we uh, um, we support them and their operations to operate safely and securely. Mm -hmm. um, but they also provide capabilities to us. And you know, most of the listeners when they hear it, you're probably thinking, okay, SATCOM, right? And that's true, mm -hmm. SATCOM. But there's a lot of great commercial space demand and awareness capabilities that we're leveraging today, and we have uh, our uh, uh, or. Uh, JCO office, our joint commercial office at uh, Incaro Springs, that is primarily primarily space domain awareness companies that work with our joint task force for space defense to look at problems that we're looking that we're that we're seeing in space and use commercial capabilities in to augment or supplement our um, government capabilities to understand what's going on in the domain. And I could go on and on. I mean, mm -hmm. we <clears throat> we rely on on um, commercial imagery now more than we ever have as a department. You know, I mentioned the space age, the government capabilities were still the premier capabilities. There were some emergent commercial mm -hmm. ISR capabilities back then, but you know, if you really wanted the, the, the top product, you, you went to the National Reconnaissance Office or, or NGA. Today, it's probably still the best, but largely filled in by uh, large volume and high quality commercial capability that mm -hmm. together gets us a really good idea of what's going on in the globe in any given moment. You know, we, uh, in those early days of the Ukraine conflict, I think we all watched, uh, um, you know, the news stations that were showing imagery of that Russian convoy that was, you know, kind of uh, stalled outside mm -hmm. Kiev, mm -hmm. and, and there were others, other imagery about atrocity sites and such. Um, was that declassified NRO government imagery that we were seeing on the news? It was not, it was commercial. And it was pretty timely, mm -hmm. and that was pretty impressive, right? And so that's actually uh, a, a useful tool to our government that that is now being, uh, you know, trans it's transparent. It's making the globe transparent. It mm -hmm. made Russia's activities transparent. So it was achieving um, more than just a, a news need. It was actually achieving a, an international awareness need. Right, right. That when those companies started taking pictures from space which had always been the sole purview of the national intelligence agencies, the NRO, et cetera. Uh, it, it did kind of break the mold, didn't it, of what was possible going forward. Um, combatant commanders over the years have said, I don't need to be able to count the rivets on a tank. I just need to know whether or not the missile I, or the bomb I dropped on it hit it. So the resolution requirements are much lower, mm -hmm. which means um, you can put up less expensive and more reconnaissance platforms in space. But I would think one of the key issues going forward is who has the tasking authority over what pictures they take. So if you can envision a, an operation in the Pacific 
and the um, fleet forces commander says, where is the Chinese fleet? Or what's the status of the uh, a, a blockade or whatever is happening? Or maybe assembly areas on the eastern shore of China. Uh, he doesn't want to be trumped by what's going on in Europe or some other national intelligence collection requirement. He's uh, or she is going to want to be able to task the assets necessary to conduct their operations and their AOR. And it's so what are your thoughts on where tasking authority could be, should be in this case? Should it be put it in the rack and stack at the national intelligence or should it be to U.S. Space Command who's operating these things and is directly supporting or perhaps even to a component, space component, at the Indo-PACOM headquarters who has authority. Have you thought about this? This is oh, a doctrinal question. It is, and yeah. we actually, we have. I would, yeah. let me go back to my free space ages uh, and look at this, look at ISR from space through those lenses. Yeah. Just real quick, so we mm -hmm. can see why it's different today. I think you laid out a really good. So in the first space age, you know, Man, the National Reconnaissance Office was a, a was a, a national treasure. Absolutely, right. I mean, and it still is. I would argue. I, I would still argue. Didn't we used to fly something called a U two? two did, did that did too? You, did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, so I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll dispense with the history lesson here. But you know where I was going with that, sure, right? And we sure. need we needed the NRO in that first space age to understand that strategic threat. It was all about strategic strategic intelligence. Mm -hmm. So we got into the second space age, we started to kind of have, all right, how do we get that, that, that really good stuff that we used to get uh, just for strategic purposes in the first space age? How do we get that down to, to battlefield commanders? And we, we made some progress with that. And I think the NRO did a, and NGA did a nice, they did a shift, they made a shift. But it's really now, it's now becoming, and I think you described it well, it's really becoming no longer a, a pure intelligence uh, need. It's a battle management need. Right. And it's part of the kill chain. Part of the right. kill chain. Yeah. yeah, And now, and that's the really true emergent part in this third space age mm -hmm. is the ability to use space capabilities, and they may be commercial. They may be, you know. In fact, I don't think, I don't think Amarillo cares. He just wants, he just wants to know the answer to the, the questions question. you said. Right? He doesn't care where it comes from. Just tell me. Right. That's battle management, mm -hmm. and that I think is where we start to have a. That's where I think the discussion is having today between Title, uh, Title Ten, Title Fifty kinds of authorities with. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, space-based ISR. Mm -hmm. and maybe ISR is not even the right term anymore because we're really talking about battle management. And and you you talked about, you kind of framed it as sort of an intel picture, but it could be a dynamic intel picture. I, I may need uh, ground-moving target indications that are part of my battle management. Right. So to get to your, so but I'm, I'm not skirting your question. I'm oh. laying it out. Yep. It's about battle management. That should be something that's done by a joint force. Then the question is, I don't want to, I, I think we have to figure out how we do that. How do we make sure the prioritization of all those capabilities is done properly mm -hmm. to meet the joint force commander's need in a globally integrated way? I think largely in a potential conflict with China, Indo-PACOM is going to need and get the lion's share of that. But they may not need to get all of it because it will be a global challenge that we're facing. We at U.S. Space Command are customers of that need too. We, we shouldn't overlook that. You know, I, again, the the... Most, some of you in the audience, you're just thinking space command. You're thinking old functional combat command, right? We just supply uh, those capabilities or oversee or champion those capabilities to the terrestrial geographic combat commands. We want to know where the threats are coming that are counter space threats. And those can come from any domain. 
They can come from the land domain in, a, in, a, in an ASAT launch. They can come from the sea domain from an ASAT launch or from jammers aboard, aboard uh, naval vessels. They can come from the air domain mm -hmm. um, uh, of an air-launched uh, ASAT. And they can come from the cyber domain. Any domain uh, can be the origin of a threat for U.S. Space Command as we operate and protect the in our AOR. So again, I think the message here is we all need all of these capabilities in a responsive way to manage a global battle. Right. You, you need timely support as well right. as we the do. terrestrial commanders. Very good. Well, while we're on joint doctrine here and talking about that, you know, every regional COCOM has a component command for air, land, maritime, special operations, and now space. And we're starting to see those stand up at, at the uh, regional combatant command headquarters. Do you envision U.S. Space Command, your command, having air, land, maritime, cyber, and soft comp components that field and bring to bear capabilities to support integrated offensive and defensive operations in your area of responsibility? So the answer is yes, and we have actually all of those today except for soft. Okay. And so let me pause, and again, another doctrinal vector here. We've kind of made this mostly about um, space force, I think, uh, and space-focused doctrine, uh, or maybe joint doctrine with regard to space. Um, the other services are realizing more than ever the dependence that they have on space, a and maybe the advantages that space brings for them to do operations in their domains. Mm -hmm. And so they're evolving their own space doctrine. And again, perfect thing to discuss here at the Mitchell Institute, right? All of the services have some form of air doctrine, right? Mostly started because of threats from the air, and then mm -hmm. how could they use the air domain to, to uh, enable their uh, scheme of maneuver within their domain? They also, though, were envisioning a future of strategic bombardment, for example, before they even had the capability. Uh, and yeah. so uh, we, we have lots of folks thinking about a lot of ways that how, how space will contribute in the future. Yeah. The idea here is that, um, so I, I'm actually heartened. So the, the Navy has actually begun a maritime space officer uh, cadre. Okay. Uh, the Marines have done a similar thing. There's a, and, and the Army's been doing it for years. Mm -hmm. um, and so, they're, so all of the services realize that space is important. So they're delivering, developing their own understanding and expertise of space. Um, and at the same time, all of them will some one way or another contribute to our needs. Um, the the uh, uh, I expect that the Army in the future will have uh, will, will have satellite capable cap capability to jam satellites from a lot of their maneuver forces. Mm -hmm. The more capacity we have that we can bring to bear as a joint force, the better. Navy, perhaps the same way. Um, any any service that has any capability to bring that's going to allow us to achieve effects against an adversary in the space domain is therefore naturally part of a joint solution. So you would think it'd be beneficial to your mission in, in yep. for you know, controlling the space domain and winning a fight in space if, if required, certainly deterring one every day. Would be I, to I have should, yeah, go ahead. I just want to say we do, I just want to make sure that the audience is tracking. Not only do we have, you know, the more traditional service components from all of the services, we have an Army uh, component, a mm -hmm. U.S. Space Command, a Navy component, a Marine component. We also have a cyber component. Um, it's mm -hmm. 16th Air Force is our cyber component that uh, is assigned Forces 4 to CyberCom but is in support of us. Okay. And so we have a cyber component as well. Another serious threat vector. Absolutely. And opportunity. Absolutely. For offensive operations. Yeah, I'm, I'm fond of saying space and cyber are BFFs. 
best friends. Yeah, I mean, always. I mean, we forever. We, we will always need to, anything that cyber's interested in, we're interested in. Whether <laughs> it's the advantages cyber can bring to bear, we can probably exploit those in the space domain. If it's the threat vectors and vulnerabilities in the cyber domain, they're of interest to us automatically. Interesting. You know, the more I listen to you, General Shaw, the more it seems that we spend maybe too much time trying to say how different space is from other areas of responsibility, when really there's a tremendous amount of similarities, a tremendous amount of needs and requirements to not only effectively operate in peacetime, but to deter warfare, and in the event of deterrence failing, to make sure we dominate in that domain, and not only for the sake of that domain, but in support of terrestrial combatant commanders. Would you agree that yeah. there's more similarities than, but for Kepler, and, and the lack and the <laughs> lack of air? There, uh, there will always be something distinctive about our domain, like all the other domains. Exactly. And again, you know, I think Billy Mitchell did a good job of kind of pointing out we got things a little bit different here in the air domain, but. And I think this is one of the other characteristics of the third space age is this idea of normalization of space. A lot of what we're seeing in, in space today, the, the, the congestion, the uh, challenges, the threats, uh, they kind of get us kind of concerned. But there's a silver lining there, and that is we've arrived. Space is now an integral part of human society, and we take everything into that domain that we endure in the other domains. And so we need to leverage the... The, the, the transcendent similarities in those domains to the space domain in many ways. And, and we found at U.S. Space Command there's a lot of uh, fruit to be harvested in that regard. Right. How did we do, how did we, and I've laid out some of this today already uh, for the audience here. You know, how, how did air doctrine uh, evolve over time? We're seeing some of this start to happen in the space domain now, right? When we made the transition from uh, lighter than aircraft to powered aircraft was a huge inflection point in air power doctrine. I think we'll see a similar, I, I, I think we'll see some similar doctrinal developments with the idea of dynamic space operations to sustain space maneuver. It's going to be a, a big shift in how we look at how we do operations in the domain. Great. Uh, before we go to the audience, uh, I'd like to ask you, as you've observed from your position at U.S. Space Command uh, operations in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine specifically, mm -hmm. both how the Ukrainian armed forces are operating, but also how the Russian armed forces are, are operating during their invasion and utilization of space. Any lessons learned or aha moments that you'd like to share with the audience um, as you've observed this uh, conflict? I'll hit three things real quick. The first is, uh, we may have forgotten this now, but uh, early on in the conflict, we many will remember that there was a, a significant uh, um, SATCOM outage in Central and Western Europe yes. as a result of a Russian cyber commercial SATCOM. commercial SATCOM mm -hmm. commercial SATCOM. So I would say let's not forget that lesson, that dependency um, that our space, our commercial space and cyber, that kind of uh, interface between those two domains, um, the vulnerability that that happened with an action that Russia took. So I'll just say that we need mm -hmm. to not forget that. The second is both uh, we we see you know Russia and Ukraine are, are doing SATCOM jamming. Uh, and so, and that is having a role in um, uh, their ability to affect the scheme maneuver of the other. And then the one I think that we'll be most interested in is, and I've said this before, we're witnessing, so we, just for the audience to make sure you understand terminology, nav war is a term that we use to talk about navigation warfare, you know, GPS. How do I make sure, for us GPS, but it could be any uh, positioning, navigation, and timing signal coming from um, different satellite architectures, Galileo, 
GLONASS, which is a Russian system, BEDA, which is a Chinese system. Um, and our focus has traditionally been on preserving that ability for our forces in the second space age, right? How do I make sure that we can make GPS as effective as we can? In the third space age, we may need to deny an adversary's use of those capabilities. What we're seeing in Ukraine now is the largest nav war confrontation ever seen. Hmm. And you mentioned in your opening comments, mm -hmm. I noticed. That they're jamming. Russia is jamming. GPS. G I think they're jamming more than GPS. It's mm -hmm. whatever the Ukrainians are trying to use. I think they're trying to jam yep. uh, any of those systems that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And Ukrainians are doing the same back. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, it's, we will learn from that how to conduct nav war at scale from both a defensive and offensive perspective. And so uh, that one probably the audience wasn't tracking. And I want to make sure I, I highlighted that. We're watching that pretty closely. Very good. And we have our Joint Navigation Warfare Center. Uh, in uh, New Mexico that is that belongs to US US Space Command mm -hmm. joint unit that's part of US Space Command that's really focused on that very good okay I, I keep saying one last question sorry <laughs> sorry audience but the importance of allies in this domain and and where you are working with our allies yeah I'm remiss I didn't mention it sooner thanks for bringing that up we uh, you know when I talk about that third space age I talk about we're all in it together right commercial civil, uh, there's interaction, interdependency, and grace, and that is, includes allies. We, we, uh, it's not the first space age anymore. We could kind of do our own thing and everybody sort of cheered us or whatever, however you want to look at that. We're all operating together. All of our forces are dependent on space. Um, I also note that our, our, many of our allies are making the same organizational changes that we have made yes. in that four years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I won't run through them now because it saves some time. You can go look it up, you know, but uh, yeah. some are changing their name of their service. Some are standing up commands. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we're all doing it together in, in ways that uh, uh, we never did before. But we also have challenges. Those tend to be on releasability, classification. How do we get to a common terminology, a mm -hmm. common framework that we can work at together? Very good. Well, <laughs> They're so important in every other domain. It just it seems like an obvious thing. But then as they stand up these news command organizations, there's work to be done to understand how you're going to communicate with one another and coordinate and synchronize in, in a crisis. Yeah. Here's an interesting characteristic. Um, if you're, uh, you know, if you're in UCOM or Indo-PACOM, when you think about allies and partners, you're mostly thinking about those allies and partners in your geographic AOR. Right. From a space command perspective, there's not a single nation we talk to anywhere on the planet that isn't interested in space. And so technically, they're all part of our uh, uh, partnership uh, network. Right. All of them. And so that's a, actually a large responsibility we now have to, to nurture all those relationships Great with well, all partners that want to partner with us. And as I like to say, in the space domain, geography matters. We're located on the, on the planet. It does. And, and yeah. so the fight could be in Europe, but... Yeah, uh, somebody in say Australia could be critical to that fight. Their support to your operations. Yeah, right? so. I, I like to say all astropolitics is terrestrial. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> At least for now. <laughs> all right. Now. Well, we have uh, ten minutes remaining, and I'm going to turn the the mic over to Aiden. And for those of you online, you can of course send in uh, chat messages or or however communicate to Aiden. He's going to select. Um, questions from the audience. If you're live, be sure to unmute when you come on, and we'd really appreciate it if you'd identify yourself and any organization you might represent. So with that, Aiden, over to you. Thank you, General Shelton. First, we have a question from Chris Gordon of Air and Space Force Magazine. Thank you, sir. Um, since you're talking about the need uh, uh, of developing new doctrine and different approaches, 
Um, how do you um, do that within the strengths of the combatant command as opposed to your service? Who drives that new doctrine? And is there any tension between Spacecom's mission and the Space Force's mission? For example, the Space Force uh, combatant uh, command components. Uh, what is the Space Force component's job for space and theater? What is the job for Space Force and theater? Um, and how do you uh, manage manage that issue? Thank you. Okay. Hey, thanks, Chris. I think you had yeah a number of questions in there. I'll, I'll sort of address them. First of all, um, you know, Space Force. As a, as a member of the Space Force, we're going to have to develop our own doctrine as a ser service doctrine, right? And then we have a long tradition of doing that in the Department of the Air Force. And I'm, I'm confident that, you know, that we've got some good roots that we can draw upon to do that. And that'll be Star Command that does that, right? Star, uh, Star Command has, that's correct. Okay, yeah. they have the um, doctrine role. Although, I mean, I, I'll point out, you know, they're not going to do it in isolation. I mean, right. they're responsible for the for the uh, bringing that together, um, but they're going to have to learn from the operators and mm -hmm. from the acquisition side in order to produce truly good doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be a, a all hands on deck effort in the space force. Right. Um, there's also joint doctrine. I, you know, I've I've pointed out, and I've actually made the recommendation that um, there's only one joint publication in the in the, in the joint doctrine library that is space operations. It's called is Joint Publication 3-14, Space Operations. And I've asked the, the probing question, is one volume sufficient? Um, and I think the answer is no. I think we're going to end up having a, um, several joint publications, probably along the lines of space command and control, right? Space superiority operations. And then um, the way we typically develop joint doctrine in the Department of Defense is it's, a, it's actually a, a shared effort, right? There'll be some lead organization, I think, Perhaps for space superiority operations, joint doctrine is probably the Space Force. That's why we have a Space Force, is to do space superiority. But we'll, as Space Command, we'll bring our lessons uh, to, to bear on that, and so will the other services. So joint doctrine is developed as a multi-service way. Chris, you got a little more specific in talking about the Space Force components in theater and working roles and responsibilities. I do think that's still going to evolve as well. Uh, we need the Space Force components in the theaters. I've been a big proponent from the very, very beginning. Um, and how, you know, how will, what were the functions they'll, they will execute on behalf of their combatant commander on, now remember, their authorities have to derive from that combatant commander, right? So in Indo-PACOM, you got Brigadier General Mastelier as the Space Force component commander there. Any authorities here given are derived from those that Admiral Aquilino has. And I think most of his focus is gonna be at the operational level, working with his fellow component commanders, some of them outrank him, but they still need him mm -hmm. um, to make sure that uh, the integration of space capabilities is, is, is as effective as it can possibly be in every in any scenario. Great, thank you, Chris. Aiden, next question. Next, we have Audrey Decker from Defense One. Hi, thank you so much for doing this. Um, when you were talking about sustained space maneuver and the need for satellites to be able to move in and out of orbit, can you explain exactly how that capability would increase deterrence and you know what might happen if we don't pivot to dynamic space operation? And what's the time frame on that? When exactly do you hope to have that capability? Thanks. Yeah, um, no, thanks, Audrey. So we, we've actually just, you know, this wasn't just an idea that, you know, came up with them a week ago. It was something we've been working on, observing the way we, the way that we fly our GSAP satellites today, the way we envision future capabilities will be needed is where we've kind of, uh, um, how we've derived this concept. We sent a, a, 
a uh, request for information RFI out to many of the services and other um, force providing organizations before the holidays asking for, hey, let's take a look at this. We've asked for a demo by 2026 on how you would do sustained space maneuver for a, a given platform. And then for any platform that we think has to operate uh, as a dynamic space operations platform by 2028, we want to have a sustained maneuver capability. Um, so those are some timelines and some more specifics that we've had there. Um, did I answer your question, Audrey? I think you also asked can you, an example or how would we use it? Do you, do you have a follow-up? Right. I mean, how, how exactly would this increase deterrence and what might happen if we don't change how we do business, essentially, if we don't pivot to a dynamic operational environment? Yeah, our, our ability to... Um, swiftly respond to any kind of activity or threat or suspicious behavior that we see in the domain is limited today because by the very ways that I described how we fly GSAP today, right? If, if, if we saw a satellite behaving suspiciously, but it was sufficiently far enough away from a GSAP platform, it would take us a while to get there given the, uh, the, um, the, the limited fuel budget, and it may be determined we just can't get there because it doesn't fit within the lifetime profile of how you're gonna fly a satellite. This is basic astrodynamics with basic delta V limitations, and, and it's a traveling salesman problem in many ways. How do, you, how do you figure out how to use these capabilities? If we weren't constrained in that, <clears throat> in that way, then we could respond much more quickly to any activity, and, and a potential adversary would know that we could do that. And I think that has an inherent deterrent value, our ability to to understand what's going on in the domain and respond um, and in a way that maintains initiative. So better indications and warning, better intelligence collection, better ability to survive a threat, and better ability to hold an adversary capability at risk. Yeah, that All second to last one you said is important, right? The yeah. ability to, you know, if I, if I can suddenly, um, you know, you know, you know I, can't move a, I can't move a castle. Right? Yeah. Or not very far, <laughs> a limited delta V. Um, but if I have sustained maneuver now, I can move at will. And the, that complicates uh, the targeting capability for an adversary. It complicates a lot of things for an adversary. Very good. Thanks, Audrey. Next question, please. Next, we have Jen Demascio from Aviation Week. Uh, just to follow up on that last question. Um, when you say you are constrained, what would remove that constraint? Would that be purchasing more GSAP satellites um, or another capability or adding additional fuel or making some kind of upgrade to what you have on orbit already or a separate asset entirely? So I've used this analogy before, Jen. I'll use it real quick, right? Imagine, I don't know if you, you've ever used an RV, recreational vehicle, um, and gone on a camping trip, right? Imagine you owned one, right? Um, and, but imagine that the fuel tank was fixed and you couldn't, you couldn't refuel it, right? And that your family budget said you needed this thing to last you eight years. How are you gonna use that RV? Think about it, right? From a long-term, this is a great analogy. A long, this is how we fly other, our satellites today that we want to operate more dynamically, but we're unable to because they cannot sustain maneuver. How would you, how would you plan, mission plan your RV over that eight year period, right? You probably tell the family, I, I know we can only do one long trip over the next eight years. The next gotta be short trips. Um, and, uh, and, and you're really not gonna be able to do uh, as much as you might otherwise wanna do because it has to last eight years. Now think about how you actually execute, how you actually do operations when you're driving that RV. Are you slamming on the brakes and slamming on the gas? 
No, I think you're tapping it all and you're, you're, you're driving it for hypermileage in a hypermileage fashion. That's the way we operate our platforms today. It's, it's, we got there because that's how we evolved our technologies in the space domain. But we're at an inflection point now where we have to change that equation altogether. And the, so you got to, what, what do you change? What are the solutions? What are the solutions to my RV problem? Right? I either can refill the gas tank, which is how that exists in our universe, right? Or maybe there's another part of the multiverse where the solution to that problem is you don't have to wait eight years. You can get an RV after every trip. Uh, and then you just, uh, so you aren't constrained. We don't want to be constrained in the way we do our mission planning or our operations in ways that we are today. And I think we can get there. I'll, I'll go on to say that if the, by the way, that second solution was a, the commoditization solution that I mentioned before, right? Just, just give me a new one. Just give me, a, I don't, I almost don't care what Space Force gives us at Space Command as long as it solves my problem that I can't sustain maneuver. Um, I will say here, because some of you are thinking about refueling logistics. Um, first of all, realize that our demand signal, if it's a refueling, so, uh, a refueling solution, our demand signal is not that I want to extend the lifetime of the satellite from X years to Y years. No, my requirement is I want to maneuver it continuously. Okay, so, so too many people, I mean, maybe a commercial solution for using refueling is to extend the lifetime of a positional space operations platform. That's great. That's great. But we need it so we can maneuver continuously. It's not related to lifetime. It's not related to saving costs. It's about the ability to maneuver um, all, uh, continually. Um, I'd also say that I, I'm, I'm actually optimistic. I think that we will get to a logistics and sustainment layer in the space domain that is mutually supportive of commercial, civil, and national security capabilities that will help us uh, in this problem that we've posed. And we'll be part of helping push towards that solution. And I think it actually will help everybody operate in the domain more sustainably um, and more effectively. Well, and I, I test, I think nuclear propulsion has a role here too, particularly when you talk to CISLUNAR and the desire to maneuver those long distances and with maneuverability and not having to refuel, et cetera. So uh, you're right, there's technology out there that I think we have to advance to meet your requirements. And that's what this is all about, is meeting the requirements of your combatant command so you can do your job. And so, General Shaw, thanks so much for being with us here today. Unfortunately, we've, we've run out of time, ladies and gentlemen. Those are excellent questions. Really appreciate uh, all the inputs from our audience. And with that, we'll wrap up today's and, and wish you all a great Space Power Day.